Hello and welcome to Fuzz and Film. I'm Drew, I'm joined today by Craig. Oh hello. And Scott. Hello. Hong Kong filmmaker Wong Kar Wai's much lauded 2000 film In the Mood for Love, which debuted on the 20th of May at the Cannes Film Festival, was to be rescreened for its 20th anniversary at this year's festival. So our idea was to rather neatly stick that into the intermission episode that we released on that date. However, 5G masts erected by Big Pharma, or at least that part of Big Pharma that manufactures anti-malaria drugs, caused everything in the world to be cancelled. I've been trying to avoid the news, but I think that's quite accurate. Yep. Uh, so I'm only can't... not laughing because it's true. <laughs> so, can't happen. Um, why am I telling you this? Honestly, I have no idea beyond that the introduction I had so carefully composed within my head earlier this <laughs> afternoon buggered off before I could commit it to text. And, well, I'm mostly just typing in the hope that the mere rhythm of doing so might recover my words. And, well, I've typed this now, so I'm bloody well going to read it. I was, I was thinking that you were just hoping that maybe at least this would exist as a record for whatever civilization arises <laughs> from the uh, the ashes of this one. Uh, I don't know if Cockroach so have much interest in uh, podcast cricket. <laughs> So, anyway, we decided to just cover all of Wong Kar Wai's films over a couple of episodes, is really what I'm trying to say. (laughs) Something, something, expanding cinematic horizons, something, something, well-regarded director, something, something. (laughs) Wong Kar Wai is Chinese by birth, but moved to Hong Kong at the age of five, with his difficulties with the culture and learning Cantonese being strong influences in his work to come. Exposed to a wide range of cinema thanks to his mother, he has also been influenced by music videos and MTV in particular, and the cross-pollination of cultures he found in Hong Kong. He began his career as a screenwriter, particularly with soap operas, before moving on to film, and by 1987 had worked on more than 60 scripts, though was only credited on 10 of them. He began his directing career in 1987 with the gangster film As Tears Go By, while his third feature, Junking Express, brought him to international attention, with his reputation being cemented by his best director win at Cannes for 1997's Happy Together. His films are usually visually distinctive and vivid, frequently use slow motion and multiple character voiceover, and tend to have popular music soundtracks. They often contain themes of memory and the passage of time and the significance of dates. And his films are also going to be talked about now, by us. <laughs> the single greatest unifying uh, <laughs> aspect of Wong Kar Wai's <laughs> back catalogue. Yes. It's, it's the the cr- most crucial, most fundamental theme throughout all of his work, Craig. Well, in, in many ways, his career has been leading up to this moment. So. <laughs> Naturally. Uh, so, will we begin then with what would possibly be the bluest film I've ever seen if it weren't for the fact that the occasionally is also red. Yes. This is blue dabba dee dabba da. Uh, we are talking of course about As Tears Go By, which is why he's uh, first written and directed by credit, of course, as you've mentioned uh, before he did uh, wrote many things before this. And it comes in the shape of this nineteen eighty eight film, which is very much located in nineteen eighty eight, and also of course Hong Kong. Uh, Andy Lau plays Wa, a low level triad enforcer and a nominal boss slash big brother to Jackie Chung's fly, who is, and let's be fair to him, a goddamn fly. His crazy stunts and needling of fellow triad members often sees Wah having to clean up this mess, normally by doing something even crazier. 
this naturally starts to cause some friction between Wat and Fly and them and the rest of the mob, particularly Alex Mann's Tony. Into all this allegedly organised crime shenanigans enters Wat's distant cousin, Maggie Chung's new I think that's pronounced I meant to look that up and forgot uh, he, she's coming to the city uh, from the sticks relatively speaking in order to, to see a medical consultant for a somewhat vague respiratory malady and crashes at Waz pad for the interim they initially get off to a rather rocky meeting in large part due to Waz's unusual schedule and also his getting over a recent breakup but they soon warm to each other and you can perhaps see where that's going. But a clock is put on this after yet another escalation of the situation between Fly and Tony and his goons, with Wa again having to bail Fly out and take a thorough beating for his efforts. It's this latest humiliation that no doubt sees Fly, after recovering, keen to take up a job from the mob that Tony chickened out of an almost certain suicide mission to kill an informant in police custody before a trial, which Wa would of course rather not uh, see Fly not throw his life away for. Now, uh, this is still one of Wai's most successful films in his native land, however exactly Exactly why this would be the case eludes me. I didn't dislike it, to be clear. There's a lot to like in here, especially on what I assume is a relatively restrained budget. In particular, there's some really nice, if highly stylized, use of lighting from Y and his cinematographer Andrew Lau, the blues and reds giving a lot of atmosphere to locations otherwise would rather betray their cut price roots. It's also an early outing for the way Y handles action sequences with that weird, blurred, slow motion technique that's also pretty effective at smoothing over uh, any rough points. What I'm struggling with, and what will be a bit of a recurring theme for me at least, is that these characters characters are not overly well explored and this makes quite a few of their actions and motivations a little bit baffling. Well in this instance a lot baffling as how anyone would countenance talking to Fly let alone letting his dumbass put you in mortal danger multiple times for little to no reason befuddles me. He's just not someone you go to bat for. Hit with a bat perhaps. And with that plot thread snapped there's not much in the otherwise mostly unobjectable wan or relationship uh, thread for the to support the weight of the rest of the film, which leaves this flopping around rather evenly. That said, the decent performances from Lau and Chung, wise mainstays of the era, uh, period, and the visual style and the snappy pacing are more enough to keep things bustling along without it becoming a drag. I've certainly seen much worse directorial debuts, although I'd not be putting this near the top of anyone's watch list. But what do you guys make of it? Well, I made nothing of it because I've not watched it, but <laughs> I, I don't think that's going to change anytime soon, based on your description. What did I make of it, Scott? Blue? It is very blue. So I, I didn't make a great many notes while watching this, but I have written the word blue a number of times because, well, <laughs> I assume that was the theme. Yes. Uh, it's symbolic of blue, I think. So I'm watching this thinking, hmm, I... Uh, Kieslowski must have been a bit embarrassed about this when he came <laughs> to watch this after he'd finished because they, like uh, it, it is um, you're quite right in saying very much a product of the 80s yes it is <laughs> it is the most 80s yes it's got all the 80s um, stuff in there yeah and it, it wastes no time in getting straight into the 80s with its uh, synthesizer score right at the beginning yeah <laughs> um, yeah it's I don't know uh, it's going to be a recurring theme for me, as you'll find out soon, but one of my big problems with this was character, or in that there isn't any. <laughs> yeah. Um, when Fly's a moron. Yeah. And this is probably a bit more, narratively speaking, conventional than a lot of the other films we'll move on to. Yeah. And even then, I'm like, I'm really struggling to see why anyone is doing any given thing at any given time. Not a lot of it makes, there's not a great deal of motivation for it. Yeah. Uh, and that's the problem. I think the fact that Andy Lau's in it papers over quite a few cracks, and actually, 
that's another thing that I found watching these films for this episode, his first five, mm-hmm. is that even though I often have no idea why anyone is doing anything, mm-hmm. uh, the fact that the people acting in the char- of the characters that are doing inexplicable things, I actually really like them. Yeah. Uh, so Andy Lau and um, Tony Long later on. So that helps a lot because I like them and they're acting well, are them. Yeah. I mean, it's not a bad film. I didn't resent my time with it or anything, but you're looking at films, Hong Kong films covering Hong Kong gangsters and stuff, and there have been so many more. They've done it so much more, well, so much better. Yeah. Um, although perhaps not so many that look, look quite as distinctive as this. I don't think you could um, really be called out as being deriv- uh, reductive to say that's a bit style over substance, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah, and then I also have a bit of a problem with the fact that I think we're supposed to sympathise with the characters, but they're all murderers. Like, <laughs> yes, they're all unhinged, apart from the the cousin who's not really got much of a character at all. Uh, yeah. yeah, and you kind of think Andy Lau's character is getting a bit better or something, but it's, oh no, he just murdered seventeen police officers or something. Oh, great, okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, and for what reason? No idea. I have no idea why he did what he did at the end. It makes no sense. Um, yeah, no. To, to finish what his idiot friend started, I suppose. But why? Yeah, uh, not not particularly clear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I suppose in researching this episode, this is the film that sticks out the most. I can imagine, though, because um, this must be round about the time that Hong Kong action cinema is really starting to take off, right? So there's kind of an explosion in that stuff, and it's to the point where it kind of rewrites the rule book for action cinema in the West. So I can imagine that there's probably this surge in that type of filmmaking, and I'm maybe not surprised that a director of note maybe got their foot in the door making another Hong Kong sort of gangster film. But, you know, it's a surprise to think that director was Wong Kar Wai because, you know, the rest of his the rest of his folio is uh, markedly different to yes. what I gather this must be from the, the plot the plot recap. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly he's someone who's fiddled around with the kind of genres that he finds himself in later on, perhaps mm. to much greater extent in Nashes of Time, which we'll get to. But um, and that's sort of what he's doing here for a lot of it. Um, it's it, it, Certainly, it's, it's obviously hugely distinct from a, a Ringle Ham or John Woo joint, and it's certainly very different. And if you have an affinity for the cinema of the era from Hong Kong at the time, then you'll probably get a little bit of a kick out of this being sort of a a different twist, a different interpretation on what was, you know, at a time kind of becoming a by-the-numbers thing. Um, Much as I love Hong Kong action cinema, it did get played to death. I mean, how many young and dangerous films do you really need? So it's not without its charm, but it's tough to really recommend uh, as anyone else. I mean, I think uh, I think probably the latter half of Y's career would probably be a bit easier for someone who, like mm. myself, I don't have an awful lot of familiarity with much of his work, but I expect it's going to be a lot easier trying to pick it up from uh, the modern day and working back rather than doing it chronologically as we've attempted here. Yeah, that's uh, the experience yeah. I've had. This is My foot in the door was 2046, which I'll, uh, I'll refer yeah. to briefly when we talk about the next film, but that I can't, I can't imagine if well, the film I'm going to talk about next, or based on what you've said um, about this film, if they had, if either of those had been my my sort of introduction, I might not have bothered to <laughs> watch anything else. But uh, I think because as goes by is is so much more conventional than most of his other stuff. 
it for the most part is about a th- kind of thing that he's not really interested in certainly in any of the films yeah. we're covering in this episode mm. so um, apart from anything else I don't think it would be a good entry point because it's not really representative no I mean it's a competent enough film yeah um, but uh, he, he very much goes on to to forge a very I was going to say distinct but Perhaps his style is distinct in how indistinct some aspects of it are, but he very much goes on to forge his own thing that that becomes the you know the defining style of Wong Kar Wai. So anything that falls outside of that is probably yeah by by default is not going to be a good place to pick up. Um, just before we move on, I guess we're probably done here, Scott. But yeah, did you actually have any guesses to what the blue was meant to signify? Because it must have been something. Because even their clothes are significantly blue in several points, and I, I couldn't quite figure what it was meant to mean. <laughs> well, they're all very sad. <laughs> um, no, no. Um, uh, there's clearly a few instances where it's just being used to show that it's night time, and that's the light you get at night, apparently. Um, but yes, for, for the, the overall prevalence of it throughout so much of the film no, I don't quite know what it is, I don't know if colour has a different um, symbolism over there um, perhaps than we're used to, but no, it didn't jump out at me as any uh, particularly unifying theme other than just it looked better than having it flatly lit by fluorescent lights as it probably should have been for a lot of the scenes um, in reality so yeah so other in, Chinese, than style, yeah. It, in Chinese culture red being sort of a lucky colour and stuff I don't suppose blue is at the other end of the spectrum and it's just designed to denote that these people are all absolutely doomed or something like yeah. that <laughs> perhaps yeah, yeah I mean because the, there are a few bits of significant red and you know red in Chinese is oh. to do with like luck and fortune and things but it doesn't really seem to have that particular significance in the film either, so... No. Hmm. Uh, I have no idea. Because, yeah, I had the same thought Craig was like, I'm mis- just missing some sort of cultural cue hmm. um, that that would have a meaning, but um, the very small amount I know, um, it doesn't really seem to match up. Hmm. So. Well, certainly cold is a thing that Wong Kar Wai returns to again and again, I think, in, a, in an emotional sense. So perhaps it's... Perhaps it's to denote that. Perhaps that's an early indication of his of his fascination. Shall I shall I go on and talk a bit about his next film, his yes. first identifiably Wong Kar Wai film, which is Days of Being Wild, which more accurately translates from the original Cantonese title as Ninety Minutes of Being a Dick to Women. <laughs> um, Wong Kar Wai's sophomore movie and his first to be declared a bona fide critical success Days of Being Wild establishes much of the tone that would eventually come to be seen as the director's trademarked MO mainly an omnipresent atmosphere of languor as defective adults sit in anonymous rooms betraying one another's emotions the first part of what would later reveal itself to be a 60s set trilogy, the action, or perhaps more accurately, inaction of days, takes place in a seamy Hong Kong that seems typically half-remembered and humid with nostalgia. In it, we are introduced to Yuddy, a brooding Leslie Chung, as he basically psychologically abuses his way into the affections of Su Li Zhen, played by Maggie Chung, who is somewhat demure and unassuming, but because this is a Wong joint, also stunningly attractive. In spite of his cold and detached demeanour, Li Zhen is clearly besotted with Yuri and makes the mistake of mentioning marriage, at which point her beau makes his feelings on the topic clear by physically assaulting his way into the affections of showgirl Mimi, Karina Lau. Li Zhen finds some solace and emotional connection one night when, in the midst of an attempt at collecting her belongings from Yuri's house, she ends up walking the beat with police officer Tide, Andy Lau. Predictably, it's not long before Yuri tells Mimi to sling her hook too, this time propelled by a desire to travel to the Philippines and finally find his birth mother, an act that leads to an ultimatum from his adoptive mother, played by Rebecca Pan. 
All this plays out for the first hour until about 20 minutes from the end, at which point Yuri is suddenly shooting gangsters while sharing a hotel room with Tide, who apparently quit being a cop and left to become a sailor. Even taking into account the fact I had really terrible subtitles, I'm still somewhat baffled by this sudden turn of events, and that's before the final scene introduces a character played by Tony Leung, uh, apparently apropos of nothing. (laughs) Now... Depending what kind of mood I'm in, I may try and source a better copy of Days with decent subtitles and watch it again, as I only really fell for Wong's later work, 2046, more of which in a later podcast, on a second viewing. Chances are I won't go back, however, as one of my prerequisites for revisiting a film I'm not 100% sure I've got a handle on is having a sympathetic lead, and Yuri is most certainly not that. Mm-hmm. While Leslie Chung, rest his soul, was certainly a handsome young man I find it incredible that the character he portrays here Would have had quite the effect he does on women Given the tactics he employs Your mileage, as always, may vary But I don't think I know a single woman who would tolerate a man Stalking them at work each day And incessantly demanding they dream of him that night Nor having someone restrain and suffocate them To the point of forcing their mouth open for a kiss Your day is, in short, a total and exhibits none of the sympathetic character traits we would hope for from a leading man. If an early scene where he beats one of his adoptive mother's suitors hints at a soul capable of emotion, then little is to come of it, as from that point onwards he is equally a knob to her too. Unfortunately, we get to spend precious little time with the other main characters, many of whom are actually interesting and display vaguely human qualities, and who would certainly give the movie some much-needed heart. In particular, I would much rather Yuri were a background character in the story of Lee Jen and Tide, who it's hinted may have gone on to have some relationship, though I don't think it's ever directly implied. I may have days all confused, in which case I'm happy to hear the argument as to why. Certainly I appreciate the atmosphere and cinematography, though not to the degree I did in 2046, for example, and there are enough people who argue this is peak Wong, even taking into account In the Mood for Love, that I have to at least consider the possibility that I am terribly, terribly wrong. But I don't think I am. Perhaps one of my friends here can shed some light. You're not wrong. Yay! Uh, uh, I'm off the bed now. <laughs> here begins, uh, there are hints of it in As Tears Go By, but here begins a running theme through this episode of really, really unhealthy, unbelievable relationships full of creepy um, behaviour from usually men, but not always, mm. and relationships that don't make any sense. And like, why would anybody spend any time with them, let alone. This he walks into the sports club that the woman's working in, mm. knows her name, which is creepy enough anyway, and she never seems to push that. She asks once and never goes on, and then because comes back the next day, remember this minute we've spent together, and suddenly she's in love with him. Like that's yeah. not how humans work. Yeah. <laughs> so yes, yeah, that is the big, the biggest problem I have with this Craig same issue is like the central character is an asshat. Yep. He's a spectacularly unlikable person, and there doesn't seem to be any good reason for it. He's just unlikable for the sake of being unlikable. Yeah, I was thinking that. It's like mm. I don't necessarily need the main character to be hundred percent sympathetic for it to have work as a film. No, the problem no. with Yuddy is that it would work if he if I got the impression that he was a deep, conflicted character with lots to hide and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. But I don't. He's just he's, angsty with it and makes poor decisions. I, I wondered. Brat. Yeah, I wondered yeah. throughout if the fact that so his adoptive mother. Um, um, I can't remember if it's just suggested or if it's if it's outright declared that she used to be a prostitute. I wonder if at some point we were going to find out that he was wrestling with his upbringing, watching the way that other men treated this woman that he thought was his, was his mother, for example.
example, and that's that's where he's learned his cues how to treat women. But then he's obviously clearly unimpressed by that guy who I think it's implied was trying to steal um, her earrings on that occasion. Yeah. yeah. And he kicks the absolute crap out of him. So then I thought to myself, right, okay, so clearly he's capable of emotion and there's some sort of protective uh, drive there. So clearly he is capable of caring for people, but then he just goes on to treat her like an absolute pillock as well. Um, and there's no real rhyme or reason to it. I just, uh, like you say, Scott, yeah, uh, perhaps I should clarify, yeah, you don't you don't need to have a 100% likeable protagonist, but you need to at least have a handle on where they're coming from. And there's, there's none of that with this guy. They need to make sense. That's the thing. I mean, you can have mm. a sociopath as a yeah. central character and it can be really intriguing, fascinating. Yeah, yeah as long as you but, can parse them. Yeah, there's yeah. got to be some sort of, you have to have an entity character. Well, they have to have a character and he doesn't. Mm. He's mm. maybe a character trait or two at most, but he's not a character. <laughs> and he's just, he's deeply unpleasant for the sake of being deeply unpleasant, it seems. Mm. Yeah, it's very um, difficult to invest in anything that he's doing. And I didn't get the impression that this, this is why he's trying to be like Brechtian or anything about it. I think he's mm. just a bad character. Yeah. Uh, I don't yeah. get it. Yeah. And then, and then like the other characters you think might be more to, again, Andy Lowe, and I think a, a lot is just because I like Andy yeah. Lowe a great deal. Mm. But his character's more interesting, more sympathetic. He's just like a, Regular nice fella, you yeah. know? But then suddenly gets pulled into a gunfight at the end, murders some people, and then, oh, <laughs> okay then, why, why are you doing this? And then, but never mentioned again. And uh, then you're, um, you're Yaddy, I'm sorry, I forgot the name. Uh, he's, um, he gets shot, but apparently has several hours to bury his soul, but yep. never considers, the former police officer never considers, you know, getting him some help or something. <laughs> well, it's been made clear that it's 12 hours to the next stop, so what's the point? It's <laughs> <laughs> a bit like, um, was it Maximum Impact? We're talking about the fact that apparently the characters read the script and knew he had to die, so there was no point in trying to get help. <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah. I don't know, there's, in, in a sort of overarching way, I kind of get the point of Days of Being Wild. It's like mm. the, the polar opposite of a rom-com, where everything's all messy and <laughs> you know, full of hurt and unrequited love and all that sort of stuff. And I, I, I sort of see at some level what the aim is, but it just didn't quite gel for me. And oh. I, there's Again, there's still certain things like here that all the acting performances are pretty much on point and it's still a very stylish looking film um, you can certainly see the, the in terms of directorial chops why he's coming on leaps and bounds and you can, you can, you can see that in the film and there's certain things that I can appreciate on some level uh, for Days of Being Wild but ultimately I just didn't like it mm. um, mainly again as we mentioned <laughs> central character is just awful and doing mm. awful things and it's, it kind of hit my limit of what I could tolerate mm. yeah. Uh, what it does share with you, saying it's kind of the opposite of a romantic comedy, Scott, but what it does share with romantic comedy, though, is that bizarre belief that if a man puts himself in the vicinity of a woman for long enough and pesters her, well, obviously she'll fall in love with him. Oh. <laughs> yeah, and the final question I'm left with, like you mentioned, Craig, is what was the Tony Lung thing at the end about? It dropped in from a different film entirely? Well, it kind of it kind of makes sense retrospectively in this in the sense of his character pretty much transitioning over into in the mood for love, and then also twenty forty six in some sort of capacity. Whether you know, I don't think it's directly the same character on paper, but it's it, it kind of is. If you get my drift, it's kind of like a it's kind of like a redo of the same character. But from all intents and purposes, from what I gathered, like Wong Kar Wai didn't even have that in mind when he was making in the mood for love. So that's a that's a thing that seems to have been retrofitted on. So yeah, it's I, also not even in the same film. No, exactly. Well, it's not in the rest of the film, sorry. No, like, that's it, exactly. It appears at the end of the film 
Yeah. For for reasons. That's what I mean, though, is just it hadn't been planned as a trilogy, so there was that, as far as I can tell, in and of this film itself, there's no point in introducing that character. And I legitimately was sitting there watching it last night and I thought to myself, whoa, wait a minute, did I do that thing where I've drifted off for five minutes <laughs> and missed a really key scene? Because I wasn't actually 100% sure why Tide was all of a sudden in a hotel room with Yuddy. And how they had managed to bump into each other. Yeah, that's not clear. What um, he mentions at some point, I think maybe somebody else in his family was a sailor, but he'd mm. become a police officer, and then mm. then you, there, I think maybe there was like some sort of bit of joining narrative there, and that like he'd wanted to be a sailor or something. But anyway, he does go. He's in Chinatown in I'm guessing Manila, somewhere in the Philippines, mm-hmm. which is where that guy Juddy had gone to mm-hmm. find his mother. Yeah. It's not clear at all, especially no. because I'm going to the Philippines, where it's a whole country. Yeah, it's a hell of a yeah, with many millions of people, it's a hell of a coincidence that they yeah. just ended up bumping into each other. But they they do sort of try to explain it a bit because he says to um, um Chinatown here isn't that big and basically mm. everybody ends up at this hotel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There um, is some sort of, this is just where people from uh, from Hong Kong and China come to stay when they land in the Philippines. Yes, but, but it's not the most strongly plotted thing at all. No, somewhat convenient. Yes. Although I say convenient, it doesn't actually even make any sense narratively. There's no reason for them to have come come across each other again, really. Most perplexing. It doesn't drive anything forward plot-wise because, well, Wong Kar Wai movies, you know, ironically given that he used to, or counterintuitively given that he used to be a screenwriter, don't, don't really operate on a level of plot. So... Yes. <laughs> Just bizarre. I was really worried that I thought, how much can I possibly have missed just from having had a bad set of subtitles? And I thought, it can't. I can't have missed that much. No. Um, so, hey ho. Uh, yeah, I might. I can. I can picture a future in which, at some point, I just out of curiosity come back to this and try and make uh, sense of it again. But I, I don't know. There's going to be a lot more things <laughs> that I think will stop this getting to the uh, the top of my to do list. Will we move on then? I think we should. Yes. This is Chongqing Express. As I mentioned in my introduction, this is the first time he's really starting to get a bit of international recognition. The English-speaking world, at least. Uh, Quentin Tarantino latched himself onto this, so that got off a bit of popularity. Takeshi Kaneshiro's... Oh, apologies in advance for the pronunciation. I'm <laughs> sorry if my death is. He Kui? Kui Kiwu? He Kiwu. Uh, I preferred. I preferred. Hey, Kui. <laughs> hey, Kui. It is then. Takeshi Kanshiro's. Hi there. It's a, a Hong Kong police detective who's struggling to get over a breakup, and is coping with it through the medium of Del Monte tinned pineapple. <laughs> Whatever it takes, I guess. <laughs> He's eventually helped out of his slump by an encounter with Bridget Lin's blonde wig and sunglasses wearing child-snatching, murdering drug trafficker. <laughs> and he decides that he's in love with her. Because no one in any of these films, nor, I suspect, the director, understands how human relationships work, certainly not healthy ones. <laughs> Despite it seeming that <laughs> Hei Kui is the protagonist of the story, his story ends about a third of the way in. So successfully so, in fact, that by the end of the film, I had genuinely almost forgotten the first section entirely. <laughs> And we move on to another lovelorn police officer. Though not before we're delivered, delivered the stunning insight that some people like pineapple and some don't. This second police officer is Tony Leung's Officer 663, whose beat tapes him regularly past the same Midnight Express takeaway where Hei Kui was making regular calls to his voicemail service. 
He's prompted by the proprietor to try bringing his girlfriend something different to his regular chef salad, a tactic so successful that she decides to try something new herself and leaves him. <laughs> well, the forlorn police officer becomes an attractive object to Faye, played by Faye Wong, uh, an employee at the takeaway. So, you know, naturally, she sets about sneaking into his flat, changing things and buying him new goldfish, none of which he notices, which I guess explains why he's still a beat cop and not a detective. <laughs> but when he finally catches her in his house, he naturally wants to go out with her, and she naturally buggers off to California. Chunking Express is, by a margin, my favourite of the films we're talking about in this episode, but I still don't find it particularly satisfying, though I'm aware much of that can be attributed to an overriding preference for strong narrative. Or, well, any narrative. <laughs> the biggest problem is that it feels so much like a feature-length music video, and I generally can't really be bo- that bothered with them when they're only four minutes long. Much is saved by the ever-watchable presence of Tony Leung, and the somehow harmless housebreaking psychopath Fei Wong, <laughs> whose Gene Seberg-esque pixie haircut is far from the only thing here that recalls Jean-Luc Godard's Breathless. Her very expressive face is a joy to behold. The film... less so, but it's certainly distinctive and visually interesting. Please note that this is not the same as good. <laughs> yeah, um... Chunking Express, this is the first time I watched this um, as well. It's one of these films that I knew about um, for a long time, but never quite got round to watching. Yeah. Um, 2046, I think, was probably, it sounds like all of us, was uh, first uh, Wonka Y film when that got released in the cinema. And I keep meaning to go back to Chunking Express, I never did until now. And I guess I like it a bit. Um, it's, it's got a lot of charm. Um, again, I think mainly due to those performances, they're, mm-hmm. they're all really great acting performances from some really great actors and that really helps an awful lot um, it helps I guess a bit that I'm not really expected to take this too seriously it's certainly leading more into the comedy side of things and in places I found it very funny um, so I'm happy enough with that. For a film that as I understand it is was basically kind of rushed through and almost tossed off because he was uh, sort of at an impasse when editing Ashes of Time. Yeah, um, this was all thrown together. And knocked this off in two months. Yeah, and and for the kind of that kind of schedule that's gone into it, I think this is uh, this certainly belies that. It certainly seems a bit more polished than that, and I think it's uh, certainly as I say got a lot of charm. It's absolutely recommended. God, God, I don't know. Um, probably not. It's, uh, it's it's pretty solid, and I quite enjoyed it. Um, I can't get too excited about it but I certainly don't, didn't regret uh, watching it and I would suspect this is perhaps one of the easier entry points into the uh, Wong Kar Wai experience as well yeah satisfying no um, again it's the same problem I've got with a lot of these characters they're I don't. I don't want to sound like any, I need someone to sit down and like every film has to have a scene where a character just sits in front of a bar and explains what's happened to him in the past and this is why he is who he is and that sort of thing. But <laughs> but need, it wouldn't have hurt. <laughs> I, I would like to at least have the impression that these characters have some sort of depth to them. You don't really need to go into all that much, but these ones kind of don't. I mean, and when they're doing things that aren't particularly realistic anyway, it, it kind of doesn't help in having me take them seriously as characters and, and investing them in them in that way, so I can't really take much of this seriously, but that's less of a, a complaint in Chunking Express because it is, its tone is lighter, it is more flyaway, it is a bit more um, disposable by its very nature, and so I, 
I, I guess I liked it uh, well enough on that basis. Again, can't be overwhelmingly enthusiastic about it, but uh, I certainly wouldn't recommend anyone steer away from it. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's all right. It's all right. <laughs> there you go. I've not, I've not watched any of the other films tonight other than my own, because I'm selfish like that. So, <laughs> Okay, then. Um, Scott, let's move on to Wong Kar Wai's take on the wuxia genre. Yes, um, this was Ashes of Time, and I should perhaps note that I was watching the 2008 redo version, or redux version, which uh, in the main appears to be broadly the same as the original version, apart from some more aggressive colour grading. Highly aggressive. Uh, we'll come back to that. <laughs> Originally released back in 1994 to, I gather, a politely baffled response for completely <laughs> relatable reasons. Uh, certainly a, a wuxia film in the literal definition of the term, but not in the uh, highly fantastical super jumping wirework shenanigans that was the typical movie translation it's more grounded in a very literal sense than the likes of Fong Sai Yuk or Chinese Ghost Story or the later Crouching Tiger and Dragon um, I rather regret myself this depth of plot recap, as it's a little obtuse. Um, <laughs> it is in what's perhaps become a wise staple technique spit into a few stories based around uh, Leslie Chung's Ouyang Feng, initially a middleman connecting mercenary fighters to those seeking to hire them, typically for revenge, who later becomes a warrior himself. I mentioned this as being told through some not completely clear nonlinear flaming. Uh, this may be confusing to some people, pointing no fingers at myself. Um, further complicating things is mercenary friend uh, Huang Yashi, uh, big Tori Lung Kai-Fi, uh, has shown up uh, on the way killing a group of bandits to steal a horse, which will, in a way, precipitate most of the rest of the film's events, uh, the remnants of that gang eventually looking for revenge. But before that, he's brought with him a bottle of wine, which a witch claims will steal memories. This may or may not actually work on Huang. It's not clear. In, in fact, so many things are not clear to me in this film that it's perhaps best served skipping over any attempt at a plot recap entirely. Um, as the film progresses, we're introduced to segments more or less focused on each of Little, Tony Leung Chung Wai as the Blind Swordsman, uh, Tony, uh, Jackie Chang as Hong Kui Yugong, a beggar looking to become an assassin, uh, Charlie Young as the perfunctorily named Girl with Mule, a, a pure villager looking for vengeance for her brother killed by Imperial Grins, and Bridget Lin as Murong Yang and Murong Yin, who is either a woman sometimes pretending to be a man, or possibly actually is supposed to become a man, given the genre, although at all times looking like a woman, even when she's a man. Look, I'm not saying this film's impenetrable, more that I was not able to penetrate this. We are a matron. <laughs> now, perhaps it's clearer if you know the bones of the classical work that this is setting itself up as a prequel to, but as a first introduction to these characters and their actions, I'm left with questions. Actually, I'm not sure I'm given enough information to form those questions, other than who, what, where, why, how. Uh, so I find myself in the same position as when we spoke about Sao Shen's How's the Assassin back in 2016, which is to say <laughs> it's doing a great deal of things that I'd ordinarily be extremely irritated by, but somehow the atmosphere and the visuals power through it and it's left me somewhat entranced by it. It's a tough film to know how to, to who to recommend it to, however. There's not the usual quantity of action that's typical of wushu films and what little there is is atypical and somewhat more visceral than you might expect if you're looking for a compelling prop to drive the action well there's not that uh, so there's strike two and on the other hand if you're looking uh, more for a character piece well i don't think there's much for you there <laughs> here again either again I, I don't have any complaints about the acting but i just don't feel there's very much revealed about any of the characters and 
I get the impression, perhaps in contrast to uh, Chunking Express, that the depth is very much there, but it's just never explored in any way <laughs> meaningful to me. Uh, so, back to the visuals, which are particularly the grading. It's an exceedingly saturated film, particularly the yellows, to the extent that a lot of people are claiming that it's an error. Um, I don't know the truth of that, but given how strongly Wise used colour in his other work, I'm more inclined to believe it's intentional, giving parts of this the feel of an Edo scroll or something similar, but more culturally appropriate to China, I suppose. Once I'd got over the visual shock of this, I rather grew to like it, but I would happily hear counter-opinions saying that it's really ugly. Uh, so... A real curate's egg of a film. Um, I don't regret watching it in the slightest, but at the same time, I don't think I could recommend anyone else to without a cavalcade of caveats. Um, <laughs> yes, very, very strange. I don't know what I watched. <laughs> That's, I think we're very much on the same page here, Scott. It's, I don't believe for a second that grading's accidental because that it can't that be yellow surely. in the desert, especially given the rest yeah. of it is fine. Um, it's the rather other bits where it's very much desaturated. It's really washed out and brown. Yeah, I've um, seen comparisons to what the original one was, and it is so markedly different. It's got to have been done for a reason, and the yeah. parts of it were so reshot. It, it, well, not reshot, but we kind of re edited and worked around it it's, it's got to be intentional but yeah, yeah it, it it could be easily seen if you just dropped it in at a random point of this and saw it like that you'd probably be reaching for your color controls on the telly it's uh, it, it's very strong <laughs> yeah um i don't know whether i liked it or not but there's certainly some really interesting looking bits there's a few selections that show the action via reflection and almost like a double reflection but everything's upside down and it looks really visually interesting i really like those scenes yeah the yellow not so much because it was it was very yellow (laughs) yes and some of the bits just some of the more brown bits just look kind of drab Mm. but given that they were clearly deliberately so it didn't bother me rather than thinking they just don't know how to like color grade or shoot or anything (laughs) you know Uh, but as for the story and the characters, and I say story and characters, but this because it's not really a watered down <laughs> word to use in English. Um, I had no idea what was going on or why. Apart from the, weirdly, the one bit that I thought was really obvious was like, well, this person is a woman pretending to be a man. When you first meet her, she actually describes herself as a woman, but it's clearly a woman because it's a woman playing with a woman's voice, no attempt to disguise it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's really, really clear. And then that's the one bit the film goes out of its way to explain. <laughs> yes. <laughs> this was actually a person playing um, her. What? Wait, <laughs> this is so weird. Um, and that section goes on forever. <laughs> yeah, it's, like, it's more of this like complete lack of understanding of how people fall in love and stuff because apparently guy uh, Huang Yoshi, the eastern heretic he said he knew she was a woman disguised but if you've got a sister or marry her and then apparently well she he loves me like nobody else and I'm the only person for him and I love him now like what? Yeah. What do you think? You had a drink with one person once and then you're now going to get murdered because he didn't turn up the next morning. Yeah. This makes no sense. I kind of wish you knew the languages because I don't know if this is just a, a weird translation glitch. Um, <laughs> they've got their genders mixed up or something because it's it seems like it's going out of its way to obfuscate something that was not very fusticated in the first place. Uh, no, because yeah. it goes out of its way to explain it too. So I don't I don't think so. I think yeah. um, it's because it's, it's really obvious. And yeah, they're not because they aren't trying to hide it. Um, you know that, that yeah. genre has a lot of like is a really good female fighter, but she's not been allowed to fight, and but she was yeah. off to yeah. play to me, and, and that sort of thing. And I mean, even Disney have done that with Mulan, yeah. but it's 
uh, there's no attempt there. She's she's basically still wearing almost the same makeup as the brother and she is as a sister, you know. Yeah. And there's no disguise in the voice or anything. It's like, uh, but then, as I say, they, they spell it out entirely. The guy that's playing the this fly in As Tears Go By, Jackie Chung, sorry, I, I can't remember yeah. his name there. Yeah, he's... Um, you get a wee bit right in the middle of the film and suddenly starts telling you what happened to him and he went to the north and became the leader of the, I don't care yeah. he didn't have a character I'm not interested in what happened to him. why are you telling me this and there are strange bits in the editing notes and this, this is the one bit where I was wondering if something had been maybe a transitional scene had been lost or something because when Tony Lung is fighting you know 8,000 bandits or whatever on mm. his own at one point they all turn into men on horseback they start off they run into this the outside of a, this hut or building whatever it is um, like 8,000 of them all in, with swords and on foot and then there's a cut to um, a different and suddenly they're all on horseback I'm like what what's happening here is it <laughs> the magical now and there's uh, and, but it's a little more like, like something was missing mm. so because there are one or two wee bits like that too that it does make you think, well, maybe the idea that there are mistakes near are right, but honestly, because I didn't actually care because there was no, there were no characters, and I didn't <laughs> understand the story because it really wasn't one. Yeah, it's it's a weird film because it's not really a Russia film because there's not all that much action in it. No, no, I mean, I suppose in retrospect, it's what you might imagine if you'd told Wong Kar Wai to go and make a Wuxia film. <laughs> it, it, we perhaps shouldn't be surprised we've wound up with this, but I can imagine if you'd only heard the the, the, the genre disclaimer going into this, you'd be, as I believe the reception was at the time, it's just, yeah, what was that? Because <laughs> it's certainly not what anyone was used to, and um, certainly isn't like what anyone's used to now. I think a lot of what he was trying to do here might have actually been done better in things like um, well, particularly House of Flying Daggers I think or maybe Hero the, the, the kind of uses of colour and all that kind of stuff and the way that that kind of ties in with the, the story and, and segments it better I think that might work better for, for those ones rather than uh, what he's done here but it's, a, it's an interesting sort of step along that path to kind of take what was a, a fairly again standard trope laden well-explored uh, genre at the time and give it a, a sort of fresh twist, which is certainly done, but I don't think it's completely successful. Interestingly, Hero had the same DOP. Mm-hmm. And Christopher Doyle. So he went on, for, he's worked a lot with Onkar Wai, but he went on to do Hero. So maybe mm. he was bringing something from that too. Very possibly, yes. Yeah, it's just... Because I think maybe you could see it as a kind of subversion of the genre. Mm-hmm. But the point... At that point, it's like... It, so much of a subversion that it's almost more of a dismissal. Yeah. <laughs> um, if that's the case, so yeah. uh, I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's a strange film because once again, I'm, and I'm somewhat handicapped in that I do much prefer like narrative and character and, and mood pieces can have effect. I mean, there are some I like a lot, but they're not my preferred thing. Mm. So like, I'm always kind of searching for explanations of why people are doing anything, but when you're given nothing at all, yeah, basically, it doesn't make a lot of sense. I would say, I mean, for all my befuddlement with it, uh, I really did 
find myself getting drawn into ashes of time more than perhaps anything else we've spoken about today. It's, I can't possibly make a case for it being his best film, even in this list. But it was the one that I, I couldn't really divert my attention away from. Um, it was the one I was always trying to struggle out, struggle to make out what's what's the point of all this, what's going on. And uh, it, it kind of dragged me along that path. Um, ultimately, at the end of it, I didn't really get any answers to it, but I, I quite enjoyed the journey being pulled along with it. Um, as I say, just just a real curious egg. It's really interesting in a lot of ways, um, but not particularly successful in many of them. But uh, I wouldn't, again, I, I don't know if I can dissuade anyone from watching it, particularly, I, I don't know if you're maybe either big into uh, Y films or if you're big into the wishy genre, maybe you get something, still be able to pull something out of this. It's, it's a really interesting film on a number of facts. It's good. Hmm, hard to say. Probably not. But, you know, it's it's... It's interesting, and it's, got, it's certainly got that going for it. <laughs> yeah, but it does also have the same problem too of not having a Lyco central character, because yeah. um, you can maybe sort of see Leslie Chung as being, guess, a vaguely mystical figure in some ways, and maybe a bit of a wandering philosopher as well as a swordsman. But then at the same mm. time. He's suggesting that a woman prostitute herself to pay for his services, and then there's a pretty strong suggestion that he at least attempted to rape his sister-in-law. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so you know, not a good person. Yeah. And I really find it quite difficult to invest any emotion in a person like that, other than you know hoping that something horrible happens to them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It's a. It's interesting, certainly. I wouldn't necessarily dissuade anyone. But it's. I wouldn't also encourage either. It's <laughs> almost every film in this podcast. I'm in that kind of weird middle ground of like, you know, should I watch it? <laughs> yes, no, no, yes. yes. If you have nothing else to do, and let's face it, I think most of us have got more time than we want at this particular moment. Uh, yeah, it's maybe worth giving it a look in. Um, but yeah, it's a very very strange film indeed. <laughs> have we persuaded you one way or the other, Craig? No. <laughs> I'm not going to watch this Fair enough Maybe we'll have better luck with Fallen Angels Yeah, well So, what's Fallen Angels all about then? No, really What's Fallen Angels all about? Because <laughs> I've no bloody idea It's becoming a familiar refrain, isn't it? <laughs> I know that the bulk of it follows the adventures Such as they are Of Takeshi Kanishiro's Hei Zuihu a mute former prisoner who makes a living by breaking into other people's businesses at 3am and forcing people to have their hair washed, buy your machines or eat copious amounts of ice cream. As at one some, does. At some, point he, at some point he decides he's in love and his hair starts turning blonde because he's decided he's a Taiwanese Russian. <laughs> oh, and his condition of muteness was caused by eating an out-of-date tin of pineapple. <laughs> so, so, like I say... <laughs> Nope, no idea. Before we meet Hayes We Who, though, we're introduced to a hitman and his business partner who cleans his house for him or something. Yeah. <laughs> she has feelings for him, so gets pissed off when he starts seeing a woman who, by the way, is convinced that they already had had a relationship of some length in the past, but hadn't, he'd never seen her before. Uh, this woman wears a curly blonde wig either because the director has a thing about women in curly blonde wigs or, my guess, because there was a similarly bewigged woman in Chunking Express. And actually Fallen Angel's um, hitman character and his agent 
this the other woman was actually supposed to originally be in uh, Chinking Express, so perhaps it's meant to be the same character, but who knows? I don't think so. But here I am thinking about it and hoping it makes sense. <laughs> it's you know, well, as you can get from that, it's clearly super solid stuff, plotting character-wise. So it fits completely with his previous four films. Though, while there's still the inexplicable and unbelievable relationship with those, there's at least fewer creepy weirdos. I should think it's clear by this point that Wong Kar Wai isn't interested in satisfying narrative or story, nor interesting characters. His films are impressionistic, a riot of saturated colour and rapid motion that, for me, are trying to convey a feeling, a mood, particularly of the bustling nature of Hong Kong. Ashes of time aside, naturally. Though I don't think they do it particularly well. There's not a film of the directors we've talked about in this episode that I actually like. However, interestingly, there aren't any that I actually dislike either. (laughs) Though, by this fifth one, I was thoroughly sick of character interior monologue attempting to tell me things the visuals and action absolutely did not back up, along with occasional banalities witnessed a comment about pineapples in uh, Chunking Express. Fallen Angels shares much of the sense of the urban isolation and melancholy that his other work exhibits uh, for all of its seeming energy and as Huey Zuhi channels David Cameron and rides a dead pig mania. (laughs) But what it doesn't have is romanticism, a word I've seen associated repeatedly with the director and having now seen more of his work and the seriously messed up relationships portrayed in them, I worry about anyone applying that term romantic they are not but Fallen Angels does find time rather unexpectedly for a touching moment of love and more than puddle deep emotion as says we who observes his father that's about all it's got going for unbelievable emotion though this does follow on quite well from Chunking Express um, it's not as good but a man rides a dead pig and forces people to have their hair washed in the middle of the night and steals their a homeless man's clothes to wash them so the homeless man will have to pay him for having washed them. <laughs> so, you know, there's that. <laughs> yes. I'm horribly confused. <laughs> yes. Uh, strange film, Fallen Angels. Uh, we've got two leads. One lives in, both live in very different Hong Kongs. One's in John Woo's, the other's in Hong Kong Fooies. <laughs> um, it's nuts. Uh, I got a lot of joy out of Fallen Angels. I don't particularly think there's anything deep or meaningful towards any of it, but I found an awful lot of it, particularly all the uh, Takeshi Kaneshiro stuff, to be really quite funny indeed. That character is nuts and I enjoyed it. Um, I'm not not, not saying it's believable or anything like that, but it's funny and that'll that'll take what I can get. (laughs) I laughed more at this than any of the other ones, particularly that bit when the poor guy with the moustache ends up as an ice cream fan (laughs) and he's just, he just at one point produces this bucket of ice cream. (laughs) When he's already eaten about four tubs, I think. (laughs) Yes. Interesting one. Um, yeah, uh, so that's all quite funny. The the sort of hitman angle doesn't really do much for me, I guess. But at the same time, it wasn't uh, insufferable. It was, uh, again, perfectly fine for what it needed to be. But yeah, it, it's certainly not the most interesting part of this film. Um, basically, any time that uh, uh, Kanishi and his character was kicking about doing something zany, it was a, that was always fun times. And what I guess was supposed to be the more uh, emotionally involving part of this, uh, with the relationship between you know the hitman and his business partner and that kind of thing, just didn't really go anywhere um, for me. That was a bit uh, a bit flat, but it wasn't enough to kind of drag the rest of it down. Um, it it is. 
perhaps surprisingly given again what we talked about with Sean King Express and that uh, production schedule this is easily the most flyaway of all the films that's uh, in this list here um, it's it, it, it's not much more than that confection of the, the zany character and uh, it, it almost feels like something else is there to back up just to get a bit of a, a, a bit of extra beef that doesn't really do anything so yeah again I got enough joy out of this to kind of give it a, a mild recommendation it's probably a, a fairly easy watch for, uh, for me because it is it is the funniest of these films and um, there's that to enjoy of it if nothing else and the same criticisms as you've mentioned and we've said for pretty much every film in this list so far um, certainly applies here um, the characters are not particularly deep or well plotted or particularly um, interesting in a lot of ways um, mm-hmm. but it's not enough for me to absolutely kill it. Um, the visual style again is it's just so insanely strong, and it's just a, an entertaining film, if nothing else. Again, that's a very guarded recommendation, but I did get an awful lot of joy out of this, so it, it is worth a look. Um, again, certainly not um, something that would be the the top of my list of Wonka wide films that, that I've seen. Um, certainly, I'm hoping that the uh, the next five that we talk about in our next podcast should all be much stronger. At least certainly one is. Uh, I know that for sure. Um, so, this is an entertaining little side project uh, to put in there, but it's not it's not essential by any means. What I'm struck by coming to the end of this first half of his career, though, is I mean. Th- there are a few bits that are visually distinctive and, and maybe actually ashes of time because he's taking such an established genre and doing something a bit weird with it. Yeah. Um, certainly going to get him attention, but I, what I'm struggling to see is like why he became the name he did. And he already was by the time he'd got to these five films. And I'm like, I'm not really seeing what's so special about it. Yeah, yeah. Certainly, I, hmm. what had been going on at the time? No, I can see that I would have liked Shunking Express if I'd watched it sort of contemporarily, and then I would probably have been disappointed by everything else that went after it <laughs> until 2046. Uh, would perhaps be the one, or, or maybe in the mood for love when we get to that. I'm, I'm expecting to like that one. But yeah, um, perhaps we'll know more um, when we've done another podcast about Yes, at the minute, um, if you presented these five films and said to me this is the entire work of this guy, I probably wouldn't have been overly impressed uh, by it. Uh, certainly wouldn't have had him pegged as being the, uh, the name that he is. But yeah. Yeah, so I, I just don't get pivotal figure in Hong Kong cinema out of this five at all. Mm. It baffled me again to to look at some other reviews of Days of Being Wild. We go back to that sort of like the the, the prototypical Wong film, and uh, the reviews are absolutely faultless. It's got like a Metacritic <laughs> score on IMDb of ninety four or something like that. <laughs> there are just like flawless reviews across the board and I just mm-hmm. you normally normally you can even if you disagree with that you can understand where the reviewer's coming from but I just don't see any of that in that film. It's really strange. I'm very yeah. I feel very I feel very removed from that film. Uh, obviously I can't speak to the other four we've spoken about tonight because I haven't seen them but certainly that film I went in off the back of my um, like uh, intense liking of twenty forty six. I went in expecting to connect with that in much the same way, and you know thematically there's a lot to share. But I just, I just feel really oddly removed from it all, um, yeah. in a, in a way that those, you know, those reviews make me feel like I'm really missing something obvious, and maybe maybe another viewing is necessary. But I don't, I don't know that I'm going to have the time to be honest. 
no, well, I mean, if that's the case, it would be... I mean, it's the same conversation for at least four of these things. I think Ashes of Time is the only one that's kind of had a bit of a critical non-plustament about, and all the rest of them seem to have been, you know, pretty well received, and I can at best give them sort of guarded recommendations to some of them for some aspects of it. So, yeah, I think we're all in the same boat in this one. Um, yeah. But, yeah, it yeah. will be interesting to see what the next five hold in the store. Yeah. If we're filling to warrant a second viewing, there's got to be something worthwhile the first time. You can't get nothing out of it and be expected to watch it again. Mm. So why would you? What, but mm. um, in most of these, I'm like, there's nothing that would really make me want to get. I don't honestly don't think I'm going to get anything else out of it the second time. Mm. Um, I, I don't think there's enough depth there, and so because they really do feel in many ways they're much more about emotion and mood than anything else. Mm. That I don't know. I, I just don't see that there's depth there. But maybe I'm wrong, but I, I just don't have the f- um, desire just now to revisit any of these. Hmm. Well, there you go. Well, we'll crash on to the next uh, five in our next episode. But until that time, take care of yourself and each other. And if you want to get in touch with us, then please do through various mediums such as Twitter, we're on there at Fuds on Film, Facebook.com slash Fuds on Film, or podcast at Fuds on Film on the old emails. Uh, until such a time, I shall bid you adieu, and I'm sure my compadres shall do too. We shall. Fare thee well. <laughs> <laughs>